Hey everyone, welcome to the True Crime Couple podcast. I'm Kay. And I'm John. And we're here to bring you part two of episode 29, The Wineville Chicken Coop Murders. We had just released the other, the part one, two days ago, and we're just, as promised, finishing up. I know we already got a lot of feedback on the first part of this episode. We know that it deals with some serious topics, and sometimes it's hard to digest, but it is good to get the story out there, because I know a lot of you said that you haven't heard of it before. So we're just glad that we can bring it to you. So, just to recap, where we left off, Sanford is still at the chicken ranch with his uncle, Stuart, who has been for the past seven months abducting children, keeping them in the chicken coops, and sometimes in the house, in his bedroom, chained and locked away when he is going to repeatedly brutalize them and rape them. What we find out later on is that the first child that he took which was the Mexican boy, he actually shot him. And that was the way he killed him. But after that, all the other boys that he is going to murder are going to be murdered through strangulation. He's forcing his nephew, Sanford, to help him dispose of these bodies and help keep this secret, all the while being brutalized and raped himself. When we left off, Stuart, with the help of his mother... And reluctantly, the help of Sanford killed and got rid of the remains of the missing boy, Walter Collins. We also found out that Stuart's mother and father definitely knew about what he was doing at the ranch because she was the one who helped kill and dispose of the body of Walter Collins. But her warning to him was never take boys who know you again. But Stuart didn't listen to his mother's advice. And he had taken 12-year-old Lewis Winslow and 10-year-old Nelson Winslow. We ended part one with the letter that he made the two boys read home. So we'll start with the letter and then we'll continue on from there. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another. Are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Dear mother and dad, we are going to Mexico to make a lot of money, making yachts and airplanes. A woman gave us something to eat. Don't worry, we will be okay. Louis and Nelson. A few days after the letter was sent, and a week and a half after the boy's arrival, Sanford was ordered to dig a very deep hole in the floor of a neglected chicken coop. Stewart asked for this hole to be deeper and wider than the other ones were. But Sanford was digging that hole as slow as he could, because that meant that the two boys would be alive for that much longer. Finally, Stewart came out and asked him why it was taking him the entire day to dig a hole. Sanford could not help it. He didn't know if it was the guilt about being powerless or the anger he had for his uncle, but he got angry and began to cry, even though he knew Stuart hated when he cried. He quickly pulled himself together and continued to dig, but Stuart stopped Sanford and told him that he would let the boys go. He just had to make sure they were ashamed and they would lie and lie good. Then he would let them go, and Sanford stopped. Did his uncle mean this, or was it another trick? He never was sure. 
but Stuart told Sanford to take the older boy into the house and start thinking of a story that would work. Once you make him understand, and you have a story to present to me, you bring him to me, and we will practice this and then tell the younger boy together. Sanford could barely contain his excitement. He had finally saved someone. He ran as fast as his bruised, beaten, and violated body would allow him to go. And he arrived at the shed with Stuart behind him. Stuart released Lewis, and Sanford took him into the house. When inside, Sanford sat him down and told him he was going to go home. He was going to actually get out. But they needed to come up with a story. And his uncle needed to be convinced that it was a good story, and that they were going to stick to it, and the two brothers could leave. Together, the young boys came up with a story that went along with the letter that was sent home. When they were satisfied with the story, they ran out to tell Stuart and hoped that it was good enough. When they found Stuart, he was standing outside of the feed shed. The boys got to him and began telling the story that the Winslow brothers would tell their parents when they returned. As Lewis was halfway through the story, Stuart reached behind his back and he brought a hatchet down on the 12-year-old's head as hard as he could. The boy made a sickening sound, and as Sanford turned to look at his uncle in disbelief, he spun the hatchet in his hand and smacked Sanford in the head with the butt of the weapon, and he passed out where he stood. When Sanford woke up, he heard his uncle out in the feed shed, where he was still keeping Nelson. He heard the conversation. Stuart was telling the little boy that he was going to let him go. He hung his head as he got to the door, seeing Stuart sitting down, facing the open doorway, where Sanford now stood. Nelson's back was to him. Once Stuart saw that Sanford was there, he stood up and brought the hatchet down on the head of the boy that was, like his brother, mid-sentence. He then called Sanford over and asked him to help carry the boys to the grave. As the two worked to once again cover Stuart's tracks, Sanford was exhausted. He didn't understand the game his uncle was playing. As Sanford was covering the bodies back up with dirt, Stuart came into the coop to check his work. As he was leaving, he said to the boy, It's like the chickens. They don't know death is coming before their necks are snapped. It's the easiest way to do it. That's when Sanford knew he was going to die at the ranch. He was those boys, too. And he'd been holding on to some sort of hope. But now it was gone. The next incident that Sanford had to endure from his uncle came in the summer of 1928, almost a year since he had first arrived at the ranch. Stuart had been gone for days again when he heard the roadster coming back up the road. When the car finally pulled up, Sanford saw that Stuart had brought an entire family to the ranch, four boys and their parents. Stuart introduced them to Sanford as Jacob and Ella Dahl from Los Angeles. He said that he was hiring the family to manage the farm, but first he wanted them to come out and get acclimated with the place. Sanford pulled Stuart aside and asked what he was doing. You can't take these people down. The two older boys are bigger than we are. And Stuart told the boy that he wanted him to take all of the boys down to the rabbit hutches 
and while they were away, he was going to shoot the parents. He was hoping that this would bring the boys running back to the house. Of course, the older boys, being bigger, would arrive first, and he would shoot them as well. It was really only the two younger boys that he wanted anyway. But with their parents gone, he could keep them for as long as he wanted. Sanford knew that he would have to call over the boys to start Stuart's plan. But he couldn't do it. He was guilty about the countless boys that he had not been able to save. He wanted to save the family. He had the possibility to save six lives. So Sanford did not do anything. He sat outside and never called the boys over. He sat behind the shed and ignored Stuart's calls out to him. Eventually, he heard the car start up, and the family sounded chatty and happy. So Sanford knew that Stuart must not be doing what he planned. Relief flooded over him as he heard his uncle drive away with the family. When his uncle came back, he was enraged. He was holding a shovel and screaming at Sanford, You think you call the shots now? And he smashed him in the face with a shovel. And he lost consciousness again. When Sanford woke up, he at first thought he was buried alive. But he wasn't. It appeared he was in a dug hole in which floorboards were placed on top of him. And he could breathe, but only through the slats. However, he was unable to move any part of his body. It wasn't until that night that Sanford was pulled out from under the floorboards of the coop. For what he had done with the family, Sanford was chained by his neck and legs in the feed shed every second he was not working on the farm. And again, he was bearing the brunt of his uncle's rages, which now seemed more violent and long-lasting than they had ever been. A few weeks into this punishment, Sanford was woken up by his uncle, who was telling him that his whore of a sister was saving his life. Sanford couldn't believe what he was hearing. Jesse was coming down to visit him and to make sure that he was all right. But the happiness was quickly overshadowed. He did not want anything to happen to her. Stuart unchained him and told Sanford that he better keep up with the charade and that they would have to get their stories straight about school, the scouts, and the ranch. And Sanford agreed. He was going to save Jesse's life as well, and Stuart made it very clear that to do this, he would have to send her away quickly. Jesse was finally picked up by her uncle, without Sanford, at a diner just outside of town. There was no love lost between the two. Jesse, being only three years younger than Stuart, knew that her uncle was a bad man. When Jesse arrived at the ranch, she couldn't find her brother at first. The truth was that Sanford was scared for Jesse to see him in the state that he was in. When Jesse saw Sanford, after he couldn't hide any longer, she couldn't believe her eyes. Her brother, who had just turned 15, was smaller than the day he had left their house in Canada. He may have had the body, still, of a 13-year-old boy, but he had the face of a grown man, exhausted and weather-worn. He looked horrible, and she couldn't help but notice that he was walking with a limp. Stuart called to him to finish his chores, and when he turned around, she noticed that her brother's shirt was so full of sweat that it clung to his body. And through it, she could see his back, his scarred back, 
and she knew instantly that she had done the right thing in coming to see her brother. Of course, while Stuart was there, Jesse kept everything to just small talk, and he seemed satisfied with that. But when he fell asleep that night, Jesse snuck into her brother's room and asked him about the limping and his back, and he had said that they were just accidents. She asked to see his scarred back, and at first he refused, but she threatened to wake up Stuart unless he showed her. So Sanford slowly lifted up his shirt and showed Jesse the deep burns from the boiling water that never healed properly because they were re-agitated during every attack. Jesse silently sobbed next to her brother. They heard their Uncle Stuart get up to use the bathroom, and they waited there in silence until he went back to bed. They waited until they heard him fall asleep again, and then Jesse said, that they'll talk more the next night. But the next night, she wants the whole truth from her brother. The next day went the same as the previous day had, and Sanford knew he'd have to answer Jesse's questions at night. He told her some half-truths, but never about the abuse or the murders. He didn't want his sister to think he was a bad person. Basically, what he told her was that the school and the scouts weren't real and that he didn't have friends, that he was isolated on the ranch, but he never told her about any of the other stuff. But I think that that was kind of implied by what was happening. Which I, it's a normal thing for especially boys not to come forward and say that they've been, you know, molested. That's, it's very hard for them to admit because they know that they're not you know they're not homosexual yeah and also that it's it's a power thing too like you know as a boy you want to be able to protect yourself and unfortunately that's not always possible but it's admitting vulnerability as well right and i think that he wanted to be strong in front of his sister because she was someone who he really admired but i think it's also the implications of murder Like, he didn't want her to think that he was involved in any of that stuff, that he was a bad person. And that she would look at him and think less of him. Right. You know? And it is a good aside because most of the information that we got from this podcast, I mean, we did get it from also court records and documentation, but most of the information that we got is from the book that was written by Anthony Flacco regarding this case. And... He does a really good job of explaining the person that Jessie is and how just really inspiring she was at this day and age to travel to California, Southern California from Canada alone as a single woman. It was a difficult journey for her to take, but also to be strong enough to, to stand up to a man like her uncle, you know? So it is, it's kind of like his superhero is his sister coming, making this journey doing this and and trying to save him which is adorable yeah it is really cute i love it so the next day they were all to head to their grandparents house sanford was not looking forward to seeing them again it was more of the same when he arrived stewart and his mother were so happy to see each other and of course they went straight away to the movies that seemed to be like their their thing their weird thing he and jesse sat on the couch And as soon as his uncle's car peeled away, his grandfather came into the living room with a suitcase for him. Jesse was helping him quickly pack his things. They didn't say much because they were moving so fast. But when they finally spoke, they told him it was time to leave. 
So it seems like Jessie kind of pulled aside her grandfather or had must have written to them and said, this has to stop. Like, there's something wrong here, so we got to get Sanford out. And just like their father's silent act of rebellion was writing secretly to his son, George Northcott's secret rebellion is trying to get this, like, network system going to get Sanford away from Stewart. Right. So he's... So it's all... I mean, this is all being done behind the scenes. Like Everything, you know... So that's his, like... He wants to protect um, Stanford. Stanford at this point. So it looks like everyone's doing it, but all the men in this family are doing it like behind the scenes. Right. They're all f- afraid to stand up to, to Stuart to his face, but right. it seems like this is George Northcott trying to help his two grandchildren. Which I'm sure that he knows that his son is also out of his mind. Yeah, so. has to. It was clear that George didn't want to help but Jesse had a sense of urgency in her face that broke Sanford's heart. They gave him some money and brought him to his grandfather's friend's house, where he would stay until Jesse could find a safe way to get him into Canada. Don't forget, they have to find a way to get him back into Canada without getting into trouble. After only being there for a few hours at his grandfather's friend's house, there was a knock at the door. There was Stuart, pounding on the door, with his grandfather standing, with his father standing behind him, at the location that Sanford was promised Stuart would never be able to locate. When the man who owned the house opened the door, Stuart pushed him aside. He found Sanford and grabbed him, bringing him back into the roadster and back to his parents' house. Standing just outside the door was his grandfather, with a fresh bruise across his face. When they got back to the house, Jesse and his grandmother were there. Jesse was screaming at Stuart. I don't care what you have going on at that ranch, but I'm not leaving without my brother. I'm taking Sanford home with me now. Stuart walked over to her and punched her in the face, knocking her down to the floor. Sanford went to leap for his uncle, but his grandfather stopped him just before he could. And Louise intervened and told Stuart that he couldn't do that to Jesse. The police then would most definitely get involved. It's one thing with the boys, but another with a woman, she said. Jesse had to leave that day because she had a train to catch in order to get the boat to head back to California. She promised Sanford that he would get away. She had to spend a night in Seattle, and she'd wait for him there. Sneak away from your grandparents' house and run to the bus station, and she gave him money to buy the ticket. He agreed that he would do that because he wanted her to leave and just get out of the situation. He didn't want her to get more hurt than she already had, so he said he would follow the plan, although he had no intentions of doing so. By this point, Sanford did not believe he was worth saving. Sanford braced himself for the punishment once they returned to the house after dropping Jesse off. But nothing came. Instead, the Northcotts were panicking. They were packing up all that they owned and putting it into Uncle Stewart's car. They all headed out to the ranch. As they were driving, Louise Northcott seemed to take the lead, as Stewart had turned into what sounded like a blubbering baby. She said that she wanted to stop at all the neighbors' houses around the farm and tell them that there was a massive sale, that they had to liquidate the property, and that is what they did. Within hours, farmers from all around bought every piece of equipment 
and every animal that was on the farm. It was bare. It seemed like the Northcots were so busy trying to save themselves that they did not have time to punish Sanford for bringing Jesse to the ranch to begin with. Once everything was sold, they packed their things and drove away, leaving Sanford at the ranch by himself. Sanford stared at the taillights of the Buick Roadster, happy that he had survived long enough to see them go. Sanford stayed at the farm for a few days. He rested and his mind raced. What were people going to think of him? Stewart had ingrained in his mind that he liked the abuse, that he must have because his body reacted to it. He was also involved in countless murders. What were they going to think? What fate awaited him in American prisons? It turned out that Jesse had found someone involved in American immigration in Seattle. They had sent police out to the ranch, where they had found Sanford. Endless interviews followed. The police could not believe the story Jesse told them, and they wanted to hear it from Sanford. Sanford, though, was still in survival mode, terrified his uncle would somehow get him out of this, and if he caved, he would get in trouble. So he told all of the cover stories. He told them that no, nothing happened at the ranch, except maybe the fact that a Mexican man tried to attack Stuart, and he killed him in self-defense. While he was holding tight to his fake stories, the police had him in isolation at a juvenile detention center ward of the county hospital. That's the same county hospital where they put Christine Collins. Oh, fun fact. Isn't that interesting? However, there was one jailer who was very kind, and that kept a watch over him and brought him his food. It was with this man that he felt protected, and it was to him that he told his story. The whole story, the truth. Once he told the jailer, he had to tell the detectives. Once he told the detectives, he had to tell the men from the district attorney's office. With shame, he told his story again and again, not knowing what anyone was thinking because nobody knew what to say, and he kept his eyes to the floor the entire time. The same day that Sanford told his story, the police cordoned off the Wineville Chicken Ranch in search for evidence to determine whether or not the boy was telling the truth. Although they would have rather it not be true, the police quickly realized that there was physical evidence to back up Sanford's entire story. So, although they did burn the bodies, there were parts of bone that didn't burn up. So all of those bones were put into like the same gravesite area. So when they found this gravesite, they found various bones, but they realized that the bones were all from different. They were probably just fragments of, you know, um, like a bunch of people's remains. Yes. And we're so. going to put those pictures up on the Instagram because they have pictures of everything that they found out at the ranch. And there's also pictures of Stuart having to point out where things happened and Sanford pointing out where things happened. Days after Sanford told the true story to police, he was visited by a man in a very nice suit. The man looked at him in the eyes and firmly shook his hand. He asked if he could sit next to him on a stool near the bed. In the dark recesses of his mind, he feared that the rapes that Stuart had always told him about were going to begin. But the man had no intentions of that. He introduced himself as Loyal C. Kelly a lawyer with the district attorney's office. Isn't that the best name ever? 
I, I like it a Loyal lot. Loyal Kelly. That's cool. <laughs> the man told him that he had impressed the police and the district attorney's office and that that was a rare thing to do. He told him that he was a brave boy. He also said that they were thinking about moving him into the general population soon and asked Sanford if he would like that. And with those words, Sanford bunched up on his bed and kept saying, no, sir, no, sir, I don't want that at all. They will kill me in there. I don't want those things to happen again. Kelly stood up immediately. What are you talking about? Sodomy? Is this happening to you in here? No, not here, he said. But Uncle Stuart would beat me until I let him. And sometimes if I did something wrong, he punished me by using a piece of wood or chicken wire. Sometimes the wood had splinters. Kelly looked around the room. Kelly looked around the room, and he saw that all the boys' pants that were laid out on the chair on the other side of the bed had blood stains in the seat of the pants. Kelly asked if this is where the blood was from, and Sanford nodded. He sat back down and told the boy that he would make sure that he was checked out by a doctor. He let the boy know that those things did not happen here, not under his watch, if they didn't want to answer to him. And then if they did, those people would go to real prison. He also told him that the Oregon boot hadn't been used in over 20 years, and he had nothing to worry about, that if he wanted to stay by himself, he could do that. Kelly told him that he would do that for him if he did him one favor. He needed him to think back on everything and rethink what happened. He said, maybe you're the one who got tricked too, and your uncle's the only one who did anything bad. While Sanford was contemplating all of this, his uncle and grandmother had escaped into Canada. At this point, his grandfather had refused to go with them and remained at their home in Los Angeles. The police had arrested George Northcott shortly after the bones of the boys were found down at the chicken ranch in Wineville. George was staying at the adult section of the same prison Sanford was at also getting medical attention, as he was refusing to talk and suffering from psychotic episodes. Seems like George Northcott finally snapped. Well, I mean, after seeing everything, well, that, everything happens, that happened, I mean, how could, how could you not? Yeah. After Winnie heard what had happened to her son, she chose to run away with her mother and brother and abandon the rest of her family. Isn't that crazy? It is crazy. Even after she knew what happened to her son. She stayed with her mother and brother. That's crazy. And ran away with them. Leaving her other kids, her two younger sons. That's despicable. They lived on the road for a while, but Winnie was not able to last under the pressure. And eventually she turned herself in. She publicly apologized for never supporting her son. But she never said sorry to Sanford. In fact, they never saw each other again. Better off. Oh, I completely agree. On September 18th, Stewart and his mother split up to avoid detection, but they were both captured on the same day as they were trying to buy transportation tickets with large American bills, presumably from the sale of the stuff from the ranch. Right. As soon as they made scenes, which both of them did, the police were called and they were immediately recognized as an APB went out with their descriptions. As the horrors of the ranch story made their way throughout the press, it seemed that all of Western Canada and the United States were looking for the Northcots. But now Stuart and his mother 
had been arrested. But Stewart wouldn't talk until one request was met. He wanted to talk to Sanford. At first, Loyal Kelly did not want to let this happen, but he decided that maybe it would work because the man would implicate himself in his crimes. When Sanford walked into Northcott's room with Kelly and the district attorney, Northcott began pleading with Sanford. He asked his nephew to stop telling all of these ridiculous lies, that he was going to get him killed. He admitted, yes, what happened with the Mexican man was true, but all the other things were lies, so just please stop. Please tell them you didn't do anything you didn't want to do. And with that, Sanford looked at his uncle in his eyes and said nothing. He looked up to Mr. Kelly and told him he wanted to leave now, and so they did. The trial against Gordon Stewart Northcott began on January 11, 1929. The district attorney tried to keep Sanford out of it as much as he could, but in order for the truth to be told, he would have to testify. There was just one problem. Stuart Northcott thought that he was smarter than all of the attorneys in the state of California. So he, as was his right under the Constitution of the United States, was defending himself. That never goes well. No, it never goes. never a good tactic. But... I mean, with Ted Bundy, it almost worked. And and in a way, you can kind of make some correlations between the two because Stuart Northcott really saw himself as someone who was, he was a talker. He could convince people to do things. He was a charmer. He wanted to be this famous person in Hollywood. Like, he had this exaggerated personality and he thought that everyone would love him if they just listened to him right so he thought he could convince anyone of this right right he convinced the families to like him look look what he did he convinced so many people to come to the ranch he could convince these people that it didn't take place well he was this he was a monster he was Mm -hmm. a wolf in sheep's clothing yeah he had the ability to woo people and make the like attract people to him. So right. So this yeah, actually it makes sense yeah. with his personality that he would that. do this. He wouldn't want anybody to speak for him except I, himself. I also think that he wanted to one final time have control, have control, and violate Sanford. Yeah. And by making him relive everything, that's what's happening. I mean, it's it's the worst thing they say when rape victims have to take the stand against their abuser and look at them and relive the situation because sometimes they feel like they're going through it all over again. Right, and it is hard, and some people don't. They, and that's they don't. why they don't. And that's, the, that's, that's, that's why a lot of people who do crimes like this don't get always get you know caught or right. go to jail. Now, could you imagine having to go through that situation, but the person that's asking you the questions is the person who did this to you? Which is insane. And also, let's add another layer and say that's your uncle. Yeah. Like, let's not forget that. This is a family member. I also think that it's going to make him feel like, should I be lying? Because it's, it's harder to to answer those questions when it's Stuart right. standing in front of and him I'm versus sure, an attorney. Yeah, and I'm sure that, like, there might be times where he can't even remember exactly what happened. No, because you definitely try like you not almost to go think crazy. about it. You almost go crazy because I'm sure, like, he tried to block lots of things out, like compartmentalize oh, 100%. I guess. Yeah, you know what I mean yeah 
But Loyal C. Kelly did not think the judge was going to grant this motion, but he did. And that meant that the little boy would have to be violated all over again on that witness stand, and this time in front of a packed courtroom. Because by now, this story blew up. It was all over every newspaper in Canada, in the United States, in Mexico. So this courtroom was packed for the entire trial. When Sanford was to give his key witness testimony, he was battling flu-like symptoms. He wondered if this was his body's way of trying to get him out of facing his uncle again. But before he was to get on the stand, he remembered what Mr. Kelly told him. He did not have anything to fear. His uncle did. He is the one who has everything to hide. Sanford knew that he was right. He remembered that old Western novel he tore up and remembered the night that he realized there was no heroes coming to save him or the boys. But right now, he had to be the hero, the one that was going to stop this from ever happening to anyone else at the hands of his uncle ever again. And he had to save himself. For two days, Sanford Northcott sat on the stand in front of a packed silent courtroom. He told the entire story of what happened to him at the ranch and what his uncle did to those boys. All of those boys. On the second day, Stuart was going to question his nephew. But things were not going well for him. Not only did the boy tell the entire story, he was completely self-possessed and no longer afraid of him. He also knew all of the evidence backed up the story that Sanford told. From a court reporter, we have the entire transcript of the questioning that took place between Sanford and Stewart. And it seems that Stewart keeps getting frustrated and asked redundant questions to get his thought process together. He was basically trying to bide time, so he was asking like stupid questions that didn't really mean anything, but it was because he was trying to make the boy nervous. Like, he kept trying to throw Sanford off, but it wasn't working. And he got up there and you thought that he was going to have like control and he's going to be this domineering person. And yes, he did get close to Stanford. He stayed in front of him the entire time, but it seemed like he had no idea how to question the boy. Well, of course not. He's not a lawyer. Right. (laughs) But I think also he didn't expect Stanford to be so self-possessed. Right. Control of himself and not scared. He expected him to be scared, and he wasn't, so it kind of threw him off balance. Well, he wasn't in his element. Right. You know what I mean? That's the biggest thing, is that Stuart's not in his element. Right. I mean, these aren't, like, trying to, like, get grab children and, you know, maybe, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like, these are professionals. You know, these you're are in a courtroom. That these are adults. These are through you. Yeah. You're not playing anybody, bro. You know? <clears throat> so here's a part of that transcript. So Stuart says... Now these Winslow boys, did you propose any other scheme besides murdering them? Sanford replied, no. Why? It wouldn't do any good anyway. Stewart said, I see. You are positive of that? Yes. What made you come to that conclusion? Well, you decided to kill him and I couldn't do anything else. I see. And that's all there was to it? Yes. When I decided on anything, it was done. Is that the idea? Yes. Now, I believe you said yesterday that you had a key to the places around the ranch, Stewart said, referring to Sanford's testimony the day before, where he said he did have the keys. Why didn't you turn the boys loose? 
Sanford replied, You would take the key away with you every time you went anywhere. You said yesterday every time, all the time you were on the ranch, you had it in your possession. Sanford replied, I had it all the time I was there, but you had it when the boys were there. Then Stewart's trying to get him tricked up, and he said, You said all the time you were there. And then he replied, I didn't have the key when the boys were there. So Uncle Stewart's going to get really frustrated, and he's going to do a whole new line of questioning. Were you afraid at any time after these vile murders are taking place? Or any time they were alleged to have been committed? That I was going to kill you? And he replied, yes, sir. You were? Why didn't you run away? I thought you would do it quicker than usual. So you never planned on taking a chance on running away or staying? I had been planning on running away, but I was afraid to do it. The same questioning was repeated over and over again, until the end when Stuart thought he was going to throw his nephew through a loop by adding some extra drama that would take pressure off of himself. He asked, Did you ever commit the act of sodomy on any of the boys that came there on the ranch? Sanford made no reaction at all, except to reply calmly, No, sir, I did not. Sure of that? Yes, sir. Did your grandfather ever commit that on you? Upon who? On you. No, sir. Are you positive of that? Yes, sir. And then Stewart turned to the judge and said, That is all. I'm through with this witness. So he tried to make it sound like Sanford was obviously involved in the the torture, rape, and murder of these boys, but he didn't get anywhere with that because Sanford wasn't giving in to what his uncle was trying to do. And he also tried to implicate George Northcott as well. Right, just throw anybody under the right, bus so he can get little, away with something. A little Casey Anthony there. Yep, oh yeah. After being cross-examined to clear up indiscrepancies, Sanford walked off the stand. He didn't look at his uncle, nor did he care to. He would never see him again. The rest of Stewart's attempts at deception during the trial were futile, including the questioning of Jesse Clark. He was only delaying the inevitable, a guilty verdict. It was in February that the sentencing trial concluded, and Gordon Stewart Northcott had been sentenced to death by hanging. He would live out the rest of his short life in San Quentin. Hopefully, having happened to him, what he told Sanford would happen to him. Oh, yeah. I hope so. Me too. Four days later, Sanford was moved to the Whittier School for Boys, which was a reformatory school. He was nervous, but the intake process was calming, and he felt instantly better when he heard the head nurse say to him that this is your new start. No one knows what happened to you here and you do not know what happened to them. You will not talk about it. You will get to know who the boys are. You will be carefree here, and know that any nonsense, meaning physical attacks of any kind, will have you thrown out of the school without a hearing. This was his chance to start over again. Now, it's it's interesting, because when you hear about these like schools for boys during this time, you think of all the horrible things that take place, but the Whittier School for Boys was an amazing rehabilitation program that really, when you look through the records, had such a high percentage rate of these boys being rehabilitated and brought back into society successfully 
after going through traumatic life experiences. It's rare, but it's a really good program that was started. That's that's really yeah. amazing. <laughs> so when filling out the intake paperwork, he looked up at Mr. Kelly, who was there with him through the whole process. And he asked him what the question nationality meant. Like he didn't know what to put down. <laughs> so Kelly laughed and told him just to put down that he was Irish, gave him a wink, because obviously he's Irish. Sanford liked that, and for the rest of his life, he wrote down that his nationality was Irish, just like his hero. That's so cute. That's really cute. Yeah, I know. But before Kelly left, Sanford called out to him, I'll never know how to repay you. Kelly turned around and said to him, prove to everyone that rehabilitation works, and then we'll call it even. And that's nice. I think he did. did. Well, we'll see. Well, I don't want to give it away. Don't blow it. I'm sorry. Don't blow it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. On October 2nd, 1930, at the age of 24, Gordon Stewart Northcott was carried up the steps of the hangman scaffold, already blindfolded at his own request. He blubbered and begged for his life throughout it all. Up until the instant, the warden pulled the trigger on the trap door. Just as the door was sprung, Stewart blurted out, No, don't. And these were likely to have been the same words that he heard for more than one of his victims. Northcott's neck did not break when he hit the end of the line, even though hangmen had highly accurate weight-to-rope-length tables available for them for many years. Stewart was left alive and strangling at the end of his rope. One of the guards then rushed forward and grabbed him around the legs and hung on, pulling him downward so that he could not do any air dancing. The guard did it with the speed and efficiency of a man who had been given instructions and knows what to do. He hung onto Stewart's legs for 12 minutes while the body completed the strangulation process. So the jailers made their final statement to Stewart by using a rope that was too short so that he didn't die an instant death. While fortunately having a man standing by with who was willing to accept the idea that part of his job was to spend those 12 long minutes feeling the death quivers run down the dying man's legs. This was noted in the newspaper accounts of the execution, but nobody said a word publicly to question the incident. So it's kind of like... Well, payback's a bitch. Yeah, well, right? did did they do it on purpose? Oh, I'm telling you right now, I feel like nowadays there's lots of, you know, whether something's ethical or not, and I understand it. Yeah. I do. Um, but back then... There were no shits given, you know? Like Yeah, this, it was kinda like you man, did something so horrible yeah. and we're gonna Like you're gonna there get was no other it. side to it. It was just yeah. you committed crimes against children, you raped and killed children. Mm-hmm. This was done on purpose. Yeah. I mean, listen, these guys, they were probably you know, let's just say even if it was one or two people that they were hanging a, a day, let's just say. No, it wasn't that All right, common. a month, maybe even a year. They know how to do it. Yeah. Like you learn how to do it. Like yeah, you the, said, the they weight, had the tables. The weight to rope length tables are Exactly. Available. So they know exactly what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sure accidents do happen, but it just so happens that an accident's done with this guy. I doubt yeah. it. I doubt it. No, I know. I, I agree. Plus, like you mentioned, it was very public. Everybody knew about it. Yeah. So I think that this also gave cause for this happening. I think it was True. done on purpose. And one month after the hanging of Stuart Northcott... The town of Wineville officially changed its name to Mira Loma, California. The locals buried the dishonored name along with the boys. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, they didn't want to be associated with this because 
all of Canada, all of the United States, all of Mexico knew that this is where this took place, and they kind of wanted to change that. New chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Three months after the monster was killed, Sanford was told that he was being released early from the Whittier School for Boys. He was going to return to British Columbia and live with Jesse. Sanford would live out the rest of his life in Canada, always close to his sister, and have a distant but loving relationship with his father and two other brothers. Sanford Clark married a woman named June McInnes in 1934, and when the Nazis invaded Poland, he did what most Canadian men did. He signed up for the military and fought bravely in World War II. Sanford returned a decorated war veteran and ready to start a family. Unfortunately, June wasn't able to have children. Sanford and his wife chose to adopt. But they did not want to adopt an infant. They wanted to take in boys that were considered too old to adopt and had been through and around the system. And that is just what they did. They adopted two boys, Jerry and Robert. Sanford lived until 1991. He was able to work at the Postal Service for 28 years, and he was able to celebrate his 50th wedding anniversary in 1989. I think that he more than made good on that promise to Loyal C. Kelly. Don't you think? I think so, too. Yeah. When his son, Jerry, was 17 years old, he told him the truth about his life at the ranch on the way to a hockey match. He felt he had the right to know because local reporters were digging up the story again as the body of a murdered nurse was found near their house, and the police had stopped to question him, knowing his past. So isn't it crazy another traumatic, horrible murder brought this back up in his life? So he felt right. like he had to tell his sons before that they found out in the media. And after his father's death, it was Jerry Clark, along with the author that I mentioned before, Anthony Flacco, who wrote the story of Sanford's life in their book, The Road Out of Hell, is where we got most of our information along with the court police records and the news reporting of the time. But that book was just so incredible. And the one um, excerpt that I read about the hanging of Gordon Stewart Northcott, that was actually from Flacco's book. The emotions in that book were caught so crazily by Flacco and his storytelling ability, but also Jerry Clark in trying to follow through with a legacy that his father wanted to begin with. In his book, Jerry wanted something to be communicated that I feel like we should too. His father lived with the guilt of not being able to save those boys. So it is to the murder victims of Stuart Northcott, the unknown Mexican boys, the Mexican man whose name is most likely Alvin Gothia, Walter Collins, Lewis and Nelson Winslow, and their families that the Clark family wants to apologize to, and let them know that they will always be remembered. So that's kind of how they wanted to end the book in saying that Sanford did always feel guilty, and it's for that reason that he lived his life the way that he did, you know, to try and make up, rehabilitate himself. But he did, he did save a lot of lives by having this stop, the intervention of his sister, he saved those six people, the family. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I mean, you're 15 years old. He was old. a victim. He was a victim. I, I, I don't know how much more he could have done at that time. There was nothing else he could have done if he wanted to live. Yeah, I mean, look, we could say that he, you know, we could say he could have, you know, 
you know, ran away. But but he really couldn't. He have. couldn't have. I mean, you With gotta understand. Isolation. This was far away from anything, or like closely, right. like there was nothing remotely even close. So I mean, to take your chances with no food, no water, um, probably no like no proper footwear, clothing. Right. It's just food. like I mean, I know there's been people that have done that, unfortunately. But I mean, he's 15 and he doesn't know the area. You know? Well, and he was scared because he was an illegal immigrant. Right. That was kind of ingrained into his mind. So there was, like, there were so many layers. Like, yes. we could try to peel back the layers and figure out, like, was there a way for him to escape at the time? But, you know what? If he did that, we don't know if he'd be, you know, he'd he'd live his life. And, right. and or we don't know. He could have, if he would have ran away, it might have never stopped and it might have continued more than it even did. Yeah. But it's also, um, there's another thing I wanted to bring up is that, even during the testimony of Sanford Clark, Christine Collins still is not going to believe that her son was killed by Stuart Northcott. And she actually was a supporter of Northcott in him saying that he never killed Walter Collins because Christine is going to say his, his entire remains were never found. So she believed that her son was still out there. And she, for the rest of her life, is going to search for her son until she dies at the age of 75. But she thinks that Northcott never killed her son. Right, which means... So that was very complicated for Sanford to live with as well, with this woman uh, publicly calling him a liar for for a long time until her death. And I'm sure she wasn't the only one. Yeah, because... I mean, I'm sure there's people that were saying, you know, oh, yeah, well, you know, you were there from the age of 13 to 15. 15. How did you not, you know, you didn't participate Participate. in anything? Yeah, I'm sure. So, like, I'm sure that there's a lot of that. But you know what? He was a victim. Bottom line. He was a victim, just like the other boys. The only difference was that they were younger and, you know, they weren't related to him. I think that's why he kept him around, was that he couldn't afford for Sanford to be dead. Well, so. like, like you said, it was ingrained in his mind. You have to be an asset, not a liability. Right. So he had to work his whole his whole lifespan at the ranch in becoming an asset and not a liability because right. he knew once he became a liability, he would be dead. People do things for survival. Right. Not saying that, you know, he's guilty. I'm. Listen, you do whatever you have to do. And... You know, he was a kid. Right. He and was it, a kid. It's also the, like we talked about in the beginning intro of part one, it's so funny to look at the nature versus nurture thing here. Yes, it is. Because this is a huge anomaly in the argument of nature versus nurture because they both grew up in messed up families. Right. But obviously, um, Stuart was nurtured with his domineering mother, whereas Sanford was kind of hated by his domineering mother yeah but but then you could say they're from the same blood so inherently are you born good or are you born bad but from the same bloodline you have a boy who was born good and a boy who was born bad or was it their situation that turned them into what it was you propose an interesting question it is really good i mean you can go on and on about like what is it? What was it that turned him? Was it the fact that he was coddled by his mother and given everything, or was it something that he was born with? Well, I mean, I mean, it doesn't help when a mother feeds into their child's fantasies. It seems like a mother and a sister because I feel like Sanford's mother also same thing. That's treated true. Him the same way. Yeah, I mean, and like, 
I mean, your kid is abducting boys. Oh, I mean, well, when they were in Canada, I'm sure he was definitely touching boys. Right, and that's and what they had to move to, boys, to the United States. Right, to begin with. Right. So you already know your son has a problem, and you're not... And you're coddling uh, he, him, still. You're coddling him, and you're covering for him. And also, with the boy, <laughs> well, you know, once they got to the... We are at the ranch, so, like, mm-hmm. it never ended. And you ran away with him, too. Right. So it, it you're feeding into... His fantasy. Yes. And, and you're letting him know that it's you're, okay. You're yes, you're letting him know it. that it's okay to just keep going. Right. Oh, you can keep being fucked up, but here's are some rules. Don't take kids that know you. you right. Know, like, every step that we took here, like, throughout this whole entire two-part story here, she did nothing but, you know, continue Encourage to... Him. Yeah. Yeah. It just right. never stopped. So, it's, it's very just insane. interesting. I think it's it's such an inspiring story, though, to, to hear, a, I mean, as happy as an ending could get... It was. It was, I'm glad that he got to live his life out. Right. And he was able to marry a woman who loved him and have kids who loved him. And, and I mean, think about everything he went through. Then he went through the war. Mm-hmm. And then this is, a, like, one of the bravest men that I've ever read about. Absolutely. And uh, I hate getting all mushy, but I'll say this. I, I think that this proves... Mm-hmm. To anybody out there listening that no matter how fucked up your life is or whatever your circumstances have been, things can always get better. Always. Right, right. And so it's, what they, yeah, it's so. the perseverance of it all. Yeah, absolutely. Also, fun mm-hmm. fact, real fast. I wonder, well, not a fun fact. There's no fact. But anyway, I wonder. Fun question. Fun question, actually. Okay. This is actually good. <laughs> uh, what was an APB like? Back in like the 1920s. Well, it was just they said that this is what the appearance of the people were who were missing. They just (laughs) described the appearance. You know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking like, oh, yeah, you know, black Model T with (laughs) Well, yeah, the the yellow Roadster (laughs) Buick. It's actually really funny when you think about it like that. It's a little different than it is Nowadays it's different. Yeah, it's so funny. Yeah. So funny. Well, guys, we hope you enjoyed episode 29. We'd love to hear what you think. Thank you again for everything. If you're feeling generous, you could leave us an iTunes review if you haven't already done so. Those always help us out tremendously. And if you're interested, you can donate on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. We're going to have, in the next week, another Patreon episode out. So we already have three up there, and we're going to put a fourth. Okay, guys, so thank you so much, and we'll see you soon. Bye, guys.